Our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the great love that you have shown us. Not only in the common ways that you bless us day in and day out, but ultimately in the love that you showed to us in Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that as we study your word today, we would just be enthralled by your love, by the unfathomable depths and heights of your great love for sinners, undeserving sinners like us. Bless this time that you would be glorified and that we would be strengthened for the service and the love of Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 43. We're going to be looking at verses 15 to 34 today. Getting close to the end of our Genesis study. Again, we're going to be studying John next, if you want to study ahead. Generally speaking, there are really only two ways that people think or talk about God. Two ways that people conceive of Him. The first, and and probably what I would say is the most common way, is to think of God as just the, the sovereign ruler of the universe. And thinking of him only in this way, uh, one's relationship to God is ultimately no different than, you know, your regular citizen's relationship to a police officer. Now, let's say that I am just your your regular citizen, and uh, I decide that I want to break the law. And so what I do is I get on the freeway, and I I decide that I'm going to drive really, really fast. And so I find a long an open stretch of road, and I decide to find out how fast my car can actually go. And so I floor it, right? The speed limit's 55, but before long, I'm I'm passing 60 miles an hour. I'm I'm passing 80 miles an hour. I'm I'm not giving up yet. The car isn't isn't giving up yet, so I, I get up to 100 miles an hour. I start going over 100 miles an hour. And let's say that a police officer sees me, And he pulls me over. How do I feel about that police officer? How do I feel toward him? You know, I I might feel a little bit angry, right? Maybe I'll feel a little bit indignant. Um, But how do I feel about that police officer if I don't get caught? Let's say that I get it up to 120 and nobody, nobody catches me. No cops see me, so I just get away with it. How do I feel then about the police officer? I mean, I pretty much feel nothing toward him, right? I, I, I feel like, I feel proud of myself, but I don't feel really anything toward the police officer. So whether I get busted for breaking the law or not, either way, the result is not going to be that I love the police officer. Now, it, now maybe he catches me and he just lets me off with a warning. And, and I might 
really be thankful for that. I might feel just a, a ton of gratitude that he hasn't given me a speeding ticket, that he's just given me a warning, which, which will never happen if you're going 120 miles on the freeway, by the way. But I'm not going to love him still. I might feel grateful toward him, but that's not the same as feeling love toward him. So this is the first way of thinking about God. The same way that a common citizen would think of just any old police officer. The second way to think about God, to conceive of God, is to conceive of him or to, th- to think of him as a father who loves us, who cares for us, who provides for us and blesses us generously, graciously, and kindly. Now let me ask you, if I see God this way as a father, is it possible that I will love him? Of course it is. It's certainly possible for me to love, for me or for anyone to love God if we conceive of him this way. And by the way, this is one of the problems with moralism. Having a strict set of rules that, that, that we enforce or that we feel like God's enforcing, we try to keep these rules, but it doesn't cause love. It doesn't grow or evoke love from us. But when we see him as a father who is gracious and kind to us, we can certainly love him. Now to say that a person must first be made aware of their sin as a means of preparing their heart to receive the good news of God's love as communicated and expressed in God's gospel, that is good and sound theology. Preparing the ground by exposing the person to the reality of their sin, the reality of their wickedness. Nobody can dispute the fact that this is the way that Jesus preached. This is the way that the apostles preached the good news, by starting with the bad news. And yet, it's the good news of God's love unto undeserving sinners that draws the affections and the love of the individual toward God. In writing to the Romans, Paul asked a rhetorical question in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He says this, and I want you to hold on to this as, as we go through our passage today. His question in Romans chapter 2, verse 4 is this, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So hold on to that today. Because as we go through this passage of Genesis, one of the questions that we want to consider is, how does God awaken the conscience and draw the resistant and rebellious sinner to repentance and, of course, ultimately to faith, salvation? You know, we've seen how hard-hearted and how distant from God the brothers of Joseph were, the the sons of, of Jacob were, except for Joseph. They were all middle-aged at this point, and not a single one of them had even started walking with the Lord of the covenant that God had made with their great-grandfather Abraham. But what we've seen over the, the course of the past chapter or two is that God has started breaking down the defenses, the resistance that the brothers all have toward God. He, he stirs up an awareness of their sin, and he brings them to a place where they don't just hate the consequences of their sin, but where they have a godly repentance that actually hates the sin itself. That's godly repentance. That's the type of repentance that leads, leads 
to life-giving grace. So what have they experienced so far? How, how has God done this to them? Well, He caused a famine to fall on, the land, on all the land, not just Egypt, but all the land, which forced the brothers to travel down to Egypt to buy grain. And of course, Joseph has been promoted to the second-in-command of Egypt. But while in Egypt, Joseph, their brother that they tried to murder, that these brothers tried to murder 20 years earlier, but ended up selling off as a slave, Joseph saw them, he recognized them, and as the second command in all of Egypt, he treated them very harshly. He interrogated them, he threw them in jail where they were isolated. It was, it was in the solitude, in the silence of jail, that they first realized what miserable sinners they were and then it was on the trip home when they when they they started discovering money in their bags one of the brothers discovered money in his bag it was on the trip home that they first started fearing what god had in store for them because of what they had done to joseph so many years earlier but we have to understand that in all these things god is working to save these brothers to open their eyes to the reality of the the wickedness of their sin in order that they would repent. In order that they would not only hate the consequences of their sin, but that they would hate their sin and turn from it. Remember, God has great plans for the lineage of, of Abraham. But up until now, these brothers have been completely worldly. They look just like the world. They are completely lost. And while it's true that all these things that God's been doing have have been softening their hearts as they've been faced with the reality of the bad news, the reality of their sin, the reality that all they deserve is God's wrath, while this is all true, there's still a sense in which we can rightly say that the best is still to come for these brothers as they're going to see the grace and the kindness and the love of God through their brother Joseph in the passage that we're looking at today. Awareness should, of sin should terrify us. It should terrify us. It should actually terrify us more than it does for any one of us. But it's the love of God that draws the affections of the sinner who's been made aware of his condition. Think of it this way. An awareness of sin is like having an awareness of a deep wound that is causing you to bleed out. And so you realize that if you don't act immediately, you are dead. And the Gospel is the same thing. God makes us aware of our sin, and then He shows us the cure, the Gospel, in order that we would act by repenting and believing. So we'll be looking at verses 15 to 34 of Genesis chapter 43 today, and the central point of this passage is that God's grace breaks down our resistance by showing us His kindness and love, which leads sinners to repentance. Let me say it again. God's grace breaks down our resistance by showing us His kindness and His love, which leads sinners to repentance. So let's start with verses... 15 to 18, chapter 43. It says, So the men took this present. They took double the money in their hand, and Benjamin. Then they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. 
When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his house steward, Bring the men into the house and slay an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the man did as Joseph said and brought the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money that was returned in our sacks the first time that we're being brought in that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for slaves with our donkeys. So after all the arm twisting that it took to convince Jacob, to finally convince Jacob to send Benjamin back to Egypt with them, as Joseph had demanded, they finally make the trip. All the brothers, including Benjamin. In a long way, I mean, I have to guess that they had to be hoping to just get in there and get out of there as quickly and as quietly as they possibly could. But as they arrive and they, they line up with, with everybody else who's there to buy grain, Joseph spots them again. He recognizes them again as they stand before him. And Joseph counts the number of them and he sees that there's one who is new. And so Joseph, whom the brothers still haven't recognized as their long-lost brother yet, the one that they had betrayed so many years ago, Joseph tells his steward, as he recognizes them, to slay an animal because the brothers are invited to dine with him at noon. And let's understand this. When the second in command in all of Egypt invites you to dine with him, no is not an option. So the brothers have to go and dine with Joseph. But think about this. Think about what undeserved kindness God is showing to them through the kindness of Joseph. Think about this for a minute. They're in the middle of a famine. And most people in the world are starving to death, and the only thing that's keeping them alive is the grain that they're able to buy in Egypt. But when was the last time they probably actually had an entire meal prepared for them, where they were able to eat generously as much as they want? I mean, at this point, it's been what? You know, a year or two now? How, how long does it take before you get sick of eating nothing but corn? Uh, not long, maybe a week or two. And it's been a year or two. And now the, this cruel overlord, or so they thought, they thought he was a cruel overlord, who, who had treated them so harshly, he invites them, or, or really commands them, to come and dine with him at noon. And they're going to have some real food. There's going to be an animal that gets slain for them. What great kindness. Be, but the brothers, it's kind of funny. The brothers assume the worst. They, they see the kindness. Don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that they don't even notice. No, they notice. They notice all right. And they realize that it's undeserved. It doesn't make any sense. And so what do they do? They assume the worst. They assume that this is way too good to be true. There's no way he's just being this nice to us. There's, there's got to be something else. This is the same fear that has gripped them since this whole thing began on their last trip down to Egypt. And they suspect that it's a plot against them. And as they walk into Joseph's home, they're surrounded by Egyptian guards. And immediately they assume that they are in deep trouble over the money that had been left in their sacks on the last trip. See, people knew 
that somebody this powerful who had a house as big as Joseph would have had, they also have a dungeon where they keep slaves and prisoners. They knew that. And so while Joseph has extended this, this just incredible kindness, undeserved, unmerited kindness to his brothers, they're thinking there's no way. There's no way this is real. This is too good to be true. It's got to be some kind of setup in which, in their minds, they're being lured in only to be taken as slaves or prisoners. Do you remember what Jacob prayed over his sons as they left? If you don't remember, don't worry, because the brothers don't remember either, apparently. He had prayed, may God Almighty grant you compassion in the sight of the man. May God Almighty grant you compassion. The Hebrew word there is the same as mercy, by the way. In the sight of the man. The prayer is being answered right here in an astounding and and mighty way, but it's being answered so affirmatively, so strongly, that the brothers are suspicious of it. So they find no comfort in it. The kindness and the compassion was so great, it's just freaking them out. Now, now what I'd like for us to, to do is to view the kindness and the grace and the love of Joseph in light of the idea that Paul was communicating when he said that the kindness and the patience of God is supposed to lead the sinner to repentance. We would certainly all agree that the kindness of Joseph couldn't compare to the kindness of God, right? But it's just a glimpse of it. It's a glimpse of it, and it's the same kind because it's, it's undeserved. It's unmerited. God is the one showing His kindness through Joseph. Joseph has every right to be angry at his brothers. He has every right to punish his brothers. He has every right to, to be furious with them, right? But he's showing them kindness. And so with, with that in mind, the fact that this is just a slight glimpse of, of God's kindness unto sinners and their, their response, if the response of the brothers in, in, you know, in light of this kindness that they're being shown is to, is to fear, it shouldn't be surprising that the response of most people upon catching even the smallest glimpse of God's kindness causes them to fear or retreat as well, and many times more so over. See, when a person knows that they're guilty before God, His undeserved, unmerited grace is going to make the sinner feel very uneasy. Feel maybe even suspicious, thinking there's no way that this offer of grace is real. Thinking, what's the catch? There's got to be a catch, because for God to just forgive me of everything that I've ever done, nobody does that. There's no way that God can do that. There's got to be a catch. It sounds too good to be true. That's the way most people think about God. Why? Because they view Him as a citizen would view a cop. See this? See how this works? When a person knows they're guilty before God, they feel the same way as they do when they feel guilty before a cop or a judge. And so what does God do? What should He do? He just keeps showing him love. He persists in kindness. 
Let's continue, verses 19 to 25. So they came near to Joseph's house steward and spoke to him at the entrance of the house and said, O my Lord, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, and it came about when we came to the lodging place that we opened our sacks, and behold, each man's money was in the mouth of the sack, our our money in full. So we have brought it back in our hand. We have also brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. But he said, Be at ease. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has given treasure in your sacks. I had your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Then the man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water and they washed their feet. And he gave their donkeys fodder. So they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they had heard that they were to eat a meal there. So we've already seen one act of kindness and Joseph invited them to dine with him. But we're going to see, or we do see, three more acts of unmerited kindness here. The first was Joseph inviting the brothers to dine with him. The second happens when the brothers try to explain what happened with the money. See, they they think the reason that we're here is because of the money. The reason we're here is because somehow the money ended up back in our bags and they're thinking we stole it. And so they try to explain what happened. And they explain that they've brought that money back, plus some, to buy more food. And the steward's response is very interesting. He says, be at ease. Obviously, he sees the absolute terror in the eyes of the brother. He looks up and he makes eye contact with them and he sees the fear in their eyes. And so he tries to calm their fears. But the Hebrew word, this is what we want to make, one thing that we want to make note of. The Hebrew word that he uses, which is very significant, by the way, is shalom, which means peace. He says, peace be unto you. Hold on to that thought because that's kind of the theme, that's a thread that runs through this passage. It'll be used a total of three times. But then it's interesting, after the steward says, peace be with you, or be at ease, It's interesting to see what he says next. Look at verse 23 with me. If you've got your Bible open, look at verse 23. The steward's explaining how the money got back into their sacks, and he says this. He says, Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. So the first thing that we want to see here is that the steward did have the money. He's the one that put it back in the bags and yet he attributes it to God. Isn't that interesting? See, we want to see that there is this mysterious tension between the actions of man and the workings of God. Who put the money in the sack? The steward or God? The answer is yes. Right? (laughs) The answer is yes. They they both put the, the money in the sack, really, but ultimately it was God. The reason that the steward did it is because God had ordained it. God was the one who put the money back in the sacks through the steward. By the way, this is how biblical authorship works as well. Who wrote the book of Genesis, for example? Was it Moses or was it God? 
Again, the answer is yes. Yes, Moses wrote it. Yes, God wrote it. In one sense, they both did, but in the ultimate sense, God wrote it. God used Moses to write it. I mean, that's how we can make the claim that the original manuscripts of of the Bible were without error. Because ultimately, they were written by God. Yes, the people who wrote them, the people whom God used, were prone to error. But number one, that doesn't mean that people are always in error. And so it doesn't follow that everything that a person does contains errors. It would be a self-defeating statement to say everything I do contains errors, right? Turn that statement on itself. I'm in error to say that everything I do has errors. So what is it? So the first thing is that people are not always in error. The second thing is God is the ultimate author and He's capable of doing whatever He wants without making mistakes. God does not make mistakes. It's also how governments are commonly established. Think about uh, you know, the, the election in 2016. Who put the president in office? Was it the vote of the people or was it God? Yes. Again, it looks on the surface like it was the people who voted, but Scripture assures us that it was God. God is the one who ordains every government. God is the one who puts kings in their place and takes them away. It is God. Looks like man though. But God assures us, nope, that's me. That's God. And it's also how the doctrine of election works. There was probably a time in your life when you heard the gospel and you were made aware of your sin. You were made aware of your need for a Savior. And so you repented and believed in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. And on the surface, it looks like it was you. It looks like it was entirely you. You were the one who was made aware of your sin. You were the one who, uh, who, who put faith in, in Christ. But Scripture tells us that the work of salvation is entirely of the Lord. If it's something that you have to do, that's a work. And we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation is entirely the work of the Lord. If you're saved, it's by grace. It's entirely by grace. If you had anything to do with it, you would have something to boast about. But Scripture is clear on on one thing about this, and that is that we have nothing to boast of except the goodness and the mercy and the love of God. Paul said to the Romans, if Abraham was justified by works, in other words, by something that he did, he has something to boast about, but not before God. From Romans 4.2. So the point I'm trying to draw us to here is that God often works through people in general. Both the righteous and the unrighteous. And the credit and the honor, and the thanks, and the glory, ultimately, all must go to Him. And so yes, we want to serve to the best of our capacity, understanding that it's only because God has gifted us to serve. God has put us in a situation where we can serve. We also want to be generous, but we don't want to let our generosity go to our heads or our service go to our heads and, and develop an ego or a, a, self of, and a sense of self-entitlement because of it. 
And isn't it astounding that this Egyptian steward understands all this? He understands that there's this mystery between the working of man and the working of God who is the invisible hand behind all things, who ordains everything that comes to pass. Joseph has been a godly, godly light in the darkness of Egypt. He's been used in a great way in this steward's life. So first, Joseph invites the brothers to dine with him. Second, the kindness of God is seen in the godly kindness of the steward trying to put them at peace. The third act of God's kindness is Simeon being released. Now, they may have feared the worst when it came to Simeon, assuming that Joseph uh, would have been less than honorable with his word, that he, you know, he had an opportunity to sell Simeon off as a slave, and so he would have done that. They may have feared that. Uh, maybe they figured that he would just be in prison indefinitely, like they figured they're going to be indefinitely. Um, but Joseph proves himself here to be a man of his word and to, uh, once again, demonstrate this unmerited godly kindness unto his brothers. Fourth, they're invited to wash their feet and to feed their donkeys. Now, of course, foot washing was a cultural custom. But again, think about the circumstances here. I mean, could anybody have blamed the steward if he would have turned to them and said, you know, we'd love to have you wash your feet. We understand it's a, you know, it's a, you know, a normal thing under normal circumstances, but with the drought and the famine and everything, you know, why don't you just come on in with dirty feet? And we can give you guys a little bit of food for your donkeys, but really food is scarce. No, again, they're pulling out all the stops here. Joseph's pulling out all the stops here to show kindness. Here's what we have to see. Here's what we're supposed to see. Is that these brothers have done everything that they could to make Joseph their enemy. They have only treated him as an enemy in his experience, and yet, here he is treating them like friends. And what's the response of the brothers? As, as they're just being lavished with so much kindness. Look at verse 25 with me. Verse 25 says this, So, so there's a cause and effect here. This is their response. So they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for because they had heard that, that they were to eat a meal there. So they're thinking, we've been shown all this kindness. It's a good thing we brought these almonds and these pistachios because now we can kind of even the score. Right? Here's what they're thinking. They see all this, this kindness, all this great, all this grace, and they're getting suspicious. So what do they do? Let's give Joseph a gift. Well, let's, let's even the score. As we just saw, the person who knows that they are unworthy of God's love and acceptance, when they see the offer of undeserved grace, they fear or they get suspicious, right? So what do these brothers do? Well, the same thing that people will often do when they see the offer of God's love. They'll try to please God on their own merit. In this case, the brothers are preparing gifts that they brought for Joseph. If they're thinking if they give him the gift, maybe they can just call the whole thing even. 
and the kindness will kind of make some sense. It'll be even on, on each side. It'll be deserved. And that'll make a lot more sense. It'll just be more logical. See, they're counting on this gift to be good enough to justify their acceptance and the kindness that they've received. But that's not how it works with Joseph. And that's certainly not how it works with God either, is it? I'll never forget the time. Um, about 10 years ago, you know, I, I, I had the podcasting ministry. And a pedophile emailed me. And he thanked me for my ministry. And he confessed that he felt an immense weight on his heart. That he, he felt conviction. And he asked if I thought that God could forgive him if he just gave some ministry or some money to a ministry, whether it was mine or, or somebody else's. And I told him, I don't want your money. God doesn't want your money. God wants your repentance. God wants your heart. He wants you. And you know, I've seen it happen other ways as well. The sinner gets an idea that, okay, they, they really messed up. They just had a bad week or whatever. But they start thinking, okay, if I put a little bit in the offering plate, it'll be like paying a fine for a parking violation. Again, what is this view of God? It's conceiving of Him the way that a citizen conceives of a police officer. Not as a father. But God doesn't want or need your money. You're not paying a parking violation. And your money isn't yours anyway. It's His. It's God's. No, God's patient kindness, His unfathomable grace, is meant to lead sinners to repentance. So the place where you realize that you have absolutely nothing to offer this God except a broken and repenting heart. Psalm 51, 17. David says, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Inviting the brothers in to dine with Joseph, that was a sign of Joseph's love for his brothers, yes, but it was also a glimpse of God's unmerited love and grace for the brothers. The money was returned as a sign of Joseph's grace toward his brothers, but it was also a glimpse of God's grace toward the brothers. The invisible hand of God made the brothers aware of their need for mercy, and now it's the invisible hand of God that's showing Unmerited grace upon grace upon grace to the brothers. Let's continue, verses 26 to 30. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present which was in their hand and bowed to the ground before him. Then he asked them about their welfare and said, Is your old father well of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? There's an interesting question. They said, your servant, our father is well. He is still alive. They bowed down in homage. As he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Joseph hurried out, for he was deeply stirred over his brother. And he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. So the brothers give Joseph this gift. 
And we can assume that he, he, he probably accepted it. it. It was, you know, custom in the culture. Um, not because it was, you know, not because turnaround is fair play, not because, okay, these guys owe me one now. No, it's just he takes it as a nice gesture, perhaps as an expression of their thankfulness. And what does Joseph say to them? He, he doesn't say thanks for the gift. Instead, he says, how are you guys doing? He says he asks about their welfare. But again, that, at least that's how it gets translated. The word that gets translated as welfare is, once again, shalom. He's asking, do you have peace? Then he asks about their father, asking if, if their father is well. And again, the word well here is shalom. He's, he's saying, does your father have shalom? Does your father have peace? And is he still living? Which again, that's a very interesting question. Why would he be asking that? They've got to be thinking. So they affirm that their father is well, that, that he does have shalom, and that he is indeed still alive. And so the brothers bow, or they, they prostrate themselves respectfully before Joseph, and as, as they're all rising up, Joseph makes eye contact with Benjamin. And he asks, is, is this the brother that you guys had told me about, that I told you to bring back with you? And then he gives Benjamin this blessing. Remember that this is his full brother. They come from the same mother. Unlike all these other brothers who come from different mothers than Joseph does, Benjamin and Joseph have the same mother. Same mother, same father, unlike the other brothers. But we should pay special attention to the blessing that Joseph gives to Benjamin. Because there's only one other place in the entire Old Testament where these words show up. And that's in Numbers chapter 6, where God is instructing Moses on how to instruct Aaron. And Aaron is instructed that when the, the gathering of the assembly is getting ready to depart, he's to raise his hands over the people and say this, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift His countenance upon you and give you peace. Did you catch it? The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. This is what we call the ironic blessing or the ironic benediction because Aaron's the one who, who was supposed to do it the, the, as the priest. It's a prayer that God would go with the people as they departed from the gathering of the assembly and that He would bless them, that He would be merciful and gracious with them in all that they do. And so Joseph uses some very special and, and a unique combination of, of words here to bless the brother that he hasn't seen since his brother was a year old. But at this point, Joseph quickly runs out of the room because the emotions that he's feeling, the emotions are, that, that are just bubbling up in him, boiling over in him, are just too much for him to contain. As one translator notes, verse 30 literally says, His mercy grew warm for his brother. Mercy. Mercy. Jacob's prayer that God Almighty would grant them mercy or compassion, same Hebrew word, in the sight of this Egyptian ruler has been answered. Joseph is so overcome, he's so overwhelmed with mercy toward his brother, compassion 
toward his brother that he runs away to weep tears of overwhelming sorrow and I'm sure mixed in with overwhelming joy. He's just a, a mess of emotions at this point. Such grace. Such kindness. Why would Joseph be so good and so gracious to his brothers? God is using Joseph to draw the brothers to repentance. So maybe the better question would be, why would God do that with these brothers? Why would God be so gracious? Why would God be so kind toward a rebel who's only hated Him, who's only defied Him? It's what theologians call common grace. Common grace. Common grace is, if you wanted a a dictionary definition, it would be the provision of God toward both the righteous and the unrighteous. But when we call it common, we don't mean to say that it's ordinary. As, as if it's something that isn't extraordinary. It is extraordinary. What we mean is that all persons are recipients of it, both the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus said, the rain falls on the righteous and the wicked. That's called common grace. The, 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 the wicked prosper. Why? Common grace. The wicked are allowed to continue in their wickedness. They're allowed to continue breathing feeling happiness about their sin. Why? Why doesn't God just send them to hell? Aren't we all glad He didn't? Because that describes every single one of us at some point. It's common grace. The only reason that God allows someone to live and to breathe and to prosper when this person has only defied Him and lived in constant rebellion toward Him is grace. God would be perfectly just to strike down the wicked at any point and just cast them into hell. But He waits graciously. He allows them to experience great things like health, vitality, prosperity, earthly comfort. This is all common grace. And yet, the wicked fail to acknowledge it. They fail to recognize it for what it is. They fail to appreciate it. They feel entitled to what they have. They say, my paycheck is money that that belongs to me. That is my money because I'm the one who punched the clock to earn it. So they feel entitled to all that they have and thus it doesn't accomplish the end toward which God designed it. And that is for the sinner's repentance. Repentance. And ultimately salvation. That's Romans 2.4. Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? That's what God's doing with the brothers here. Showing them kindness so that they'll repent. So that they'll turn away from their sin. He could have punished them and He would have been just to do that. But he's got plans. So there's more to come. Let's look at verses 31 to 34. Then he, Joseph, then he washed his face and came out, and he controlled himself and said, Serve the meal. So they served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is loathsome to the Egyptians. 
Now they were seated before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth, and the men looked at one another in astonishment. He took portions to them from his own table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they feasted and drank freely with him. So Joseph, who's been in his chamber crying, weeping over the joy and the sorrow of of seeing his brother, he gets himself together, he pulls himself together, and he returns for the meal, but it, it tells us that they eat separately. Joseph eats at a table by himself, as was customary for royalty. Then the Egyptians who were present ate at their own table because they didn't like the Hebrew people. And and finally, the the brothers who were Hebrews ate at their own table. Let's remember, there's something very ironic here. And that's this. The last time that Joseph had been in the presence of the brothers eating, it was while he was stuck in the bottom of a pit as he cried out for his brothers to show him mercy. And the irony is that now Joseph is the victor who's showing mercy to the brothers as they all dine together. Mercy that the brothers never asked for. Mercy that the brothers never deserved. Nevertheless, he shows them mercy. And notice that Joseph gives them just the slightest hint that he knows them way better than they think he knows them. How does he give this hint? Because it tells us that they are seated at the table from oldest to youngest. Now, there's a certain age where it's it's really easy to do this. You know, when kids are, I don't know, under 15, it's usually pretty easy to tell uh, who's the oldest and who's the youngest. But these are middle-aged men that we're talking about. And so there might be some that have some gray hair, you know, and that gives them away. or, Or maybe they've lost some hair and that gives them away. But... How in the world would they possibly be seated in this order unless Joseph knows something about them that they don't know that he knows about them? So so there's a hint here that he's given. they got to be asking themselves, what is going on here? It says they were astonished. The generous grace continues to be poured out on them. Joseph brings food from his own table and puts it on the table of the brothers, giving an extra portion or five to Benjamin. I don't know if he does that because he has a special love for Benjamin or if it's because Benjamin looks like he likes to eat a lot. We don't know. But he gives Benjamin five times as much as he gives the brothers. And it's all grace. Have any of you failed to see the overwhelming theme of grace and mercy here? I mean, it's truly extraordinary but only because God's grace is extraordinary. It was important for the brothers to come to the point where they could actually hear their consciences screaming at them, you are guilty about what they had done to Joseph so many years before. But it was all the grace of God that even brought them to that point. So the hearts of the brothers are being softened. They've spent so much of their lives just being hard-hearted, selfish, worldly men. And God needed to rescue them from their worldliness. God needed to rescue them from their selfishness. God needed to rescue them from their egos. 
That's what this is all about. That's what's going on in, the, in this entire chapter and the, the chapter before this. That's what this is all about. And here's the thing. If you have not repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're actually in the same exact position as the brothers are up to this point. Think about it. God had every right to end their lives and to unleash His holy and righteous eternal wrath against them. But He didn't. He didn't. Instead, He patiently and graciously showed mercy upon mercy to them. Not only stirring their consciences awake, but by demonstrating His love for them through the love of Joseph. And if you haven't repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to use this passage to awaken your conscience and make you aware of the ways and the reason that God even continues to allow you to live, to breathe, to experience earthly joys and comforts. You must see that all you have and all you are, it's all God's extraordinarily common grace to you. Extraordinarily beautiful common grace to you. So let me turn Paul's question from Romans chapter 2, verse 4 at you. Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness, of God's kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And if you have not repented and believed in Christ, the answer to that question is yes. It is unequivocally, yes, you do. You do take this lightly. You do think lightly of it. You have taken it for granted. And whether you mean to or not, you will continue to think lightly of it and to feel entitled to it and to take it for granted until you turn away from your sin and place saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I urge you today, if you haven't repented and believed in Christ, make today the day of your salvation. Friends, the amazing and the extraordinarily beautiful, unfathomably beautiful love of God is most fully demonstrated in this from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, who willfully and by nature rebelled against God and rejected His sovereign rule and reign, and while we were in that condition, God did everything that was necessary to reconcile a people to Himself. And we were not only, as we were in this condition, we were not only oblivious to the degree to which we were sinning against God, but we were apathetic about it. We didn't care. And were it not for the grace of God working in us to open the eyes of our hearts to awaken 
our sleeping conscience, we wouldn't believe. And we wouldn't care if God had sent His Son to die in our place. What mercy we have all been shown. Those of us who are in Christ. What mercy we've been shown. God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Notice that it doesn't say that He demonstrated. It said, no, He demonstrates. It's not in the past tense. It's in the present tense. It's a reality that's happening today, right now, that God shows. He demonstrates His incredible love toward us in the sacrifice of His only Son, Jesus Christ. God has been more than good to every single one of us. James says this, James 1.17. He says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Do you have good things? You have breath, if nothing else. And that's just the start. The question is, do you see each moment? Do you see each blessing? Do you see each breath for what it is? A gift from God. A demonstration of God's deep and unmeasurable love unto us. We don't and we won't see it for what it is unless God's grace breaks down our resistance and shows us the present reality of His kindness and love, which leads even the vilest of sinners to faith and repentance. We have to strive and we have to learn in light of the great love that God has shown us in Christ to live according to that love. And we do that by, we do it not only willfully, but we do it joyfully by surrendering our lives to Him in an obedient love, not because we see God as this cosmic cop who's just chomping at the bit to bust us, but because we see Him as a Father who loves us who loves us more than we could ever, ever imagine. That's the type of view that evokes our affections toward Him, that evokes love toward Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for this passage and the way that it shows us your great patience, your great kindness, your great love. And we pray, Lord, that as we think about your love and try to conceive of you in light of this love that you have, that we would not see you as a God who just can't wait to get us in trouble but that we would come to see You as a Father who loves us so much that He would rescue us from our own desires and our own ambitions and our own sinfulness. That You would rescue us 
from your own wrath, pouring out your love and mercy on us instead. Father, may our lives be transformed by the reality of your love. And may our lives be purified as we're motivated to holiness, not by fear of condemnation, but by love in return to you. The God, the Father, who has blessed us beyond measure, who's been kinder to us than we could ever possibly deserve or or imagine, and who has ransomed us to be a people who would glorify himself. Truly, you are a great, great God. We pray that our lives would be transformed into the likeness of Christ by the reality of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.